Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he concludes his series, Standing on the Promises of God, where he preaches on Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, in a message titled, The Promise of Jesus' Return. In November, I began a series which I titled, Standing on the Promises of God. And we have considered some of the various facets and aspects of God's promises. And we've also looked at some specific promises God made concerning the coming of his son into this world. This morning, I would have us consider one more specific promise that we read of in scripture. And the promise, and it's a promise that Jesus will one day return to this earth. I recently read that in the New Testament, there are 318 references to the return of Jesus. If this is a case, this means that roughly one out of 13 verses mentions it, and nearly every moral command in the New Testament is tied to Jesus' return. David Jeremiah notes that for every biblical prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight concerning his second coming. Christians have always believed that one day Christ will return to the earth It is the climax of our creeds and the final proof of the sovereignty of God over human history. And when he returns, this age will come to an end and he will usher in his kingdom. Jesus' return will result in the culmination of all that God has promised to those who love his son. It will be the final stage of our redemption. Throughout history, there are numerous examples of individuals who speculated regarding the date and time of Jesus' return. And as a result of their date setting, they and their followers involved themselves in some rather radical and outlandish activity. For example, a man by the name of William Miller, using some dubious mathematical calculations, speculated that Jesus would return to the earth on March 21st, 1843. At midnight on the appointed day, His devoted followers put on their ascension robes, trekked into the mountains, and climbed towering trees. And their reason for doing so was to get as high as possible so they would have less distance to travel through the air when the Lord returned to take them home. But when the day came and went and the Lord did not return, William Miller and his followers were terribly disappointed. Miller, however, did not give up he went back to the scriptures and found what he called a mistake in his calculations. He acknowledged that he had miscounted by one year. So one year later, he and his followers once again donned their ascension robes, trekked into the mountains and climbed trees and waited for the return of the Lord. And once again, they were extremely disappointed. Well, to his credit, William Miller soon repented of his date setting and publicly admitted his foolishness in this regard. But our generation has also had individual set dates. On the 40th anniversary of Israel's founding as a modern nation, Edgar Wisenot published a little booklet titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And I'm not sure why, but I had a copy of that book come to me through the mail. And I still have it in my office, in fact. Wisenot used a strange mix of facts about ancient Israel's major feasts and data about ancient and modern calendars to conclude that Christ would return in September of 1988. 
But of course, September 1988 came and went, and the Lord did not return. Then you've probably heard of a man by the name of Harold Camping. In a book titled 1994, he attempted to build a case explaining why Jesus would come for his own sometime in September of that year. When September came and went, Harold Camping said he could have erred and said Jesus might return as late as October 2nd of that year. But again, Jesus did not return. And you no doubt remember the frenzy at the threshold of a new millennium. There were all sorts of chatter about the frightening implications of the year 2000 and the potential crisis of Y2K. People were stockpiling food and making other preparations, believing that our world was on the edge of an apocalypse. All of these examples need to remind us of what Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension. His disciples inquired of him concerning the time that he would come to restore the kingdom of Israel. And in response to their inquiry, Jesus said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, that doesn't mean that we should give up preparing for Christ's appearance in our midst. He will come again. He promised that he would. But you and I must look to scripture and not human speculation for our guide and for our information. So in light of that, what does the Bible promise concerning the return of Jesus? I want to begin this morning by summarizing what the Bible teaches about Jesus' return and then take time to make some application regarding that teaching. My understanding of scripture is that Christ's return will occur in two stages, the rapture, and the second coming. This is usually called by theologians the pre-tribulation rapture view. I think it's worth noting that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are often confused. And sometimes it is difficult to determine whether a scripture verse is referring to the rapture or if it is referring to the second coming. However, in studying end-time Bible prophecy, it's very important to differentiate between the two. So let's first of all consider the rapture. The rapture is when Jesus Christ returns to remove the church, all believers in Christ, from the earth. The rapture is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Believers who have died will have their bodies resurrected and along with believers who are still living will meet the Lord in the air. This will occur in a moment. The Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. Those Christians who are raised or raptured will be taken to heaven, to the Father's house that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 14. And there the judgment seat of Christ will take place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, the Bible says that as Christians, our works will be judged. We will not be judged concerning our salvation because that already has been secured through our faith in Jesus Christ. However, we will be judged, we will be rewarded for the deeds and works done in the name of God and for his glory. So at the rapture, believers will be clothed with immortal, imperishable, incorruptible bodies. In other words, these new and transformed bodies we receive 
will never be subject to pain, to deterioration, to age, to sickness, or to death. In John chapter 14, Jesus made this promise. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In our Father's home, in our Father's house, in heaven, when we are with Christ, we are, heaven is described as a place of praise, a place of peace, a place of God's presence, and a place that is free from pain. And we will be doing much more in heaven than playing harps as we float about on clouds, as some would have us believe. The second coming, on the other hand, is when Jesus returns to defeat the Antichrist, to destroy evil, to establish his millennial kingdom. The second coming is described in Revelation chapter 19. While the marriage, fe marriage feast of the Lamb, while the marriage supper of the Lamb is taking place in heaven, as believers are, are taking place in that, the horrific events of the seven-year tribulation will begin to unfold on the earth. The Antichrist will be revealed and he will commit the abomination that causes desolation at the midpoint of the tribulation. And the last three and a half years will be marked by a succession of judgments that result in the near total destruction of human society. When humanity, having chosen to follow the Antichrist, is ready for final judgment, Jesus will return from heaven with the saints and the angels at his side. He will defeat the Antichrist, establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, we don't have time to go into great detail regarding these events, but let me point out to you some important differences between the rapture and the second coming. In the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. At his second coming, he comes with his saints. At the rapture, believers meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. At the rapture, Jesus doesn't come all the way to the earth, but at the second coming, his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, and he will reign on earth. At the rapture, Jesus comes to reward his people. At the second coming, he comes to judge the earth. The second coming occurs after the great and terrible tribulation, while the rapture occurs before the tribulation. You see, the, the rapture marks the beginning of the tribulation, while the second coming marks the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The rapture is the removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. The second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment. The rapture will be sudden and instant, while the second coming will be visible to all. The rapture is imminent. It could take place at any moment, whereas the second coming of Christ will not occur until certain end-time events take place. There are no signs of the rapture, while there are many signs of the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So in summary... The rapture is the return of Christ in the clouds to remove all believers from the earth before the time of God's wrath. 
The second coming is the return of Christ to the earth to bring the tribulation to an end, to defeat the Antichrist and his world, evil world empire. Now, after having said that, and while affirming that I believe these things, I also acknowledge that there are Christians who do not see things precisely this way. They have a different view or understanding of Scripture regarding the second coming of Christ. And I freely admit that there, are, there is no verse that says that Christ will come before the tribulation. And so I therefore acknowledge and realize that there is room for discussion and debate on this topic. But all this brings us back to the main point, which is simply this. Christians have always believed in the second coming of Christ. Jesus himself declared, I will come back. We read of that in John chapter 14, verse 3. When Christ ascended into heaven, the angels promised the disciples that this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Three times in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus declared, I am coming soon. And the last prayer of the Bible is a prayer for the second coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is coming again. And in all appearances, world history is barreling toward the conclusion that God ordained. It isn't an end that will come as a result of nuclear war or environmental irresponsibility or alien invasion. It is one that comes by the purpose and plan of God himself, as foretold, as promised, as prophesied in Scripture. And so you and I need to make no mistake regarding this. Christ will return. Well, anticipating Jesus' return changes the way that we live. If it doesn't, then there is an indication that we are not anticipating his promised return. So let's turn our thoughts to how the sudden and imminent return of Jesus ought to affect us. How does this apply to our lives? Those who believe Jesus could come back any day are more likely to live productive Christian lives. And there are several ways that the promise of Jesus' return impacts believers, the way it ought to impact you and me. First of all, it creates within us spiritual alertness, spiritual awareness. The New Testament writers were all eagerly awaiting for Jesus to come back. They were standing or they were straining forward to that day almost on tiptoes as, as they yearned for the return of Jesus. They lived with that spiritual alertness as if Jesus could come back at any moment. Jesus himself said this concerning his second advent. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In fact, Jesus had earlier said in the gospel of Matthew, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. <coughs> Excuse me. Although Christ said that only the Father knows the exact moment of his second coming, you and I ought to live as if it were today. Would you live differently if you knew Jesus was coming back tonight? If you knew that he was returning tonight, would you be asking, am I ready? Am I living today in a way that I'd be happy to see him tonight? If his return was today, it would be our last chance to repent.
Our last chance to forgive. Our last chance to share the gospel. The return of Jesus creates a spiritual awareness within us. But also creates within us mission urgency. Every time Jesus' followers asked about his second coming, he refocused their attention on what he had already told them, how they should live until his return. For instance, they asked when Israel would be made a sovereign state again. And instead of answering their question, Jesus told them that it wasn't their place to know. Then he reminded them of their calling to share the gospel. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In this Acts account, Jesus, in a very straightforward manner, tells us we should worry less about when he will return and concern ourselves with what he has called us to do now. If you knew the world has an end and was coming to an end, and it could be soon, it rearranges your priorities. It rearranges my priorities. As someone put it, it makes no sense to go around rearranging deck chairs if you're on the sinking Titanic. And yet that's what so many professed followers of Jesus are doing with their lives. You and I can become so consumed with vacations and hobbies and possessions and fulfilling our bucket list that our actions tell the world the end is not soon and that the mission is not urgent. I'm not suggesting that God never wants us to have or to enjoy nice things. But what I am suggesting is that life is painfully short. Therefore, we need to ask, where do I want to invest my talents? I think it is safe to say that when Jesus returns, we would want to hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful steward. Well done, good and faithful servant. However, if we want to hear those words of commendation, we need to invest our talents to the fullest for his kingdom and not be sitting on them. Sadly, there will be those who will hear the chilling words of Jesus on that day. Why didn't you invest what I gave you for the advancement of my kingdom? You see, people who are anticipating the return of Jesus live with that mission urgency. <clears throat> but the coming of Christ also provides motivation to forgive. Tim Keller rightly points out that when someone wrongs us, we want justice. He says we run to the judgment seat of the world, hop on it, and help God mete out his due. But here's a problem. We weren't meant for that seat. It's too big for us. And like the ring in the Lord of the Rings, it distorts us. It makes us assume the worst in others, causes us to paint large groups with negative stereotypes, and blinds us to our own sin. He goes on to say, apart from the doctrine of the second coming, we have no power to keep ourselves from running to that judgment seat. Only by knowing that Jesus is coming back and his return means true justice can I be content to stay off it. I can endure injustice for the time being because he will set things right. And when you and I are able to endure injustice because we believe and know that God is one day going to set everything right, it gives the motivation to forgive those who wrong us, those who hurt us, those who offend us. 
But the sure and certain return of Jesus also leads us to righteous living. The Apostle John said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he goes on to say, And everyone who, has, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our hope in the certain and sure return of Jesus has a sanctifying influence on our soul. We continually prepare our hearts and soul for that day when we shall see him, as John says, face to face. The second coming is not supposed to make us stop what we're doing to wait for the Lord's return. And neither should it motivate us to focus all of our attention on the events and political developments of this world. Instead, it should prompt us to holiness, to righteousness, as we direct our heart toward Christ, who's coming every believer anticipates with joy. And then the sure and certain return of Jesus gives us hope in suffering. Depictions of Jesus' return often have him coming through the clouds or riding on top of the clouds. But Jesus says that he will be coming back in the clouds. And I think that this is an important distinction because it points back to the glory of God in the Old Testament. Frequently, when God appeared to his people, it was in the form of a powerful cloud. For example, remember when he led his people out of Egypt? He appeared to them in a cloud. When he gave them the law at Mount Sinai, he appeared to them in a cloud. When the temple was dedicated to his glory, he appeared in the cloud. This glory cloud was a sign that God was coming to dwell with his people and to do, undo all the terror and pain caused by the fall. So Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, that his return means a permanent return of the glory of God. It is a promise that all of the pain and suffering in our lives cannot last forever. Or as Cornelius Plantiga says, the return of Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. Whatever suffering you're now enduring or you will endure, Jesus says to you, lift up your eyes I am coming back, and it might be today, and when I do, I will make all things new. So if a loved one has recently passed, if you are unemployed, if you're lonely, if your body is racked with chronic pain, or if you feel abandoned and deserted, there is reason to hope. Even in the midst of the darkest valley, the promise of Jesus' return will instill hope to your heart. As one author puts it, the promise of the second coming shows us the good old days are always ahead of us. Let's return back to Acts chapter 1, verse 11, where Jesus, before his ascension back into heaven, gathered with his disciples, and he gave them that mission to take the gospel to the far reaches of the world. And then before the eyes of the disciples, he ascended back to his father. And the angel said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Did you notice that the word same is used twice in this verse? 
it tells us something crucial about the return of Jesus. The same Jesus who left will one day return. And he will return in the same way he left. This is truly an astounding thought. The same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, whose birth we just celebrated, is coming again. The same Jesus who grew up in Nazareth is coming again. The same Jesus who turned water into wine is coming again. The same Jesus who walked on water is coming again. The same Jesus who healed the nobleman's son is coming again. The same Jesus who raised Lazarus is coming again. The same Jesus who entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is coming again. The same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem is coming again. The same Jesus who was betrayed by his disciple Judas is coming again. The same Jesus who was whipped, beaten, scourged, mocked, and condemned to death is coming again. The same Jesus who died on Mount Calvary is coming again. The same Jesus who rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning is coming again. And the same Jesus who ascended into heaven is coming again. You see, there awaits in the future an event more marvelous, more startling, more amazing, more blessed than anything that has happened in the last 2,000 years. No event is more certain in the light of inspired scripture. That event is a sure and certain return of Jesus Christ. Therefore, every person on earth right now is required to make a decision for their future. If you do not receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, then someday you must face him as your judge. And so today is a day of salvation. Today is a day that you humble your heart before God. Today is a day in which you receive the free gift of eternal life by faith. Today, God is calling you. Today, the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Christ. And so if you do not know him personally, would you take that step of faith? and receive him into your heart and into your life. But you see, the sure and certain return of Christ motivates believers as well. No longer do we live by our earthly priorities, by our temporal priorities. Rather, we live by eternal priorities, eternal values. And we govern our life around those things that are important toward the advancement of the kingdom of God. Those things that declare the glory of God and reveal his goodness and his salvation. And so two questions I leave you with this morning for you to ponder and to consider. The first is, do you look forward to the return of Christ? Do you look forward to the return of Christ with fearful apprehension or joyful anticipation? If it's fearful apprehension, you can do something about that. Your heart needs to be bent toward Christ, and you need to surrender to him. Joyful anticipation means that we live our life in such a way that pleases him. How are you using your talents in actively serving the Lord? Are you employing those talents exercising the gifts and abilities God has given to you in, in constructive ways? Or like the servant in the parable, have you buried the talent 
and the resources God has given. Sitting on the fence, sitting on them, not using them to please and honor him and to bless other people. I would encourage you over the next days, next few days, to reflect upon these questions and de determine in your heart your standing before our Lord. I'm going to ask you to bow as I pray. Father God, we hold on to this promise that you have given through the inspired writers of Scripture, the promise of your certain and sure return, that your son Jesus will return to this earth and establish his millennial kingdom, that he will make all things new. And Father, in this world of, of heartbreak, in this world of suffering and chaos and destruction, we have this hope, this hope that is given to us. And so may our lives be governed by this hope. May our actions, Father, be undertaken for your glory and honor, understanding that through your power, you will use us to impact this world for your glory. For one day we will stand before you and be rewarded for those things that we have done for your honor and for your praise. So Father, if your spirit is prompting someone this morning to make a spiritual decision, I pray that they would respond, that they would not push this to the side, that they would not dull the voice of your spirit. Father, that they would respond in faith and allow you to do a tremendous work in their heart, in their life. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash tbcswanriver. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.